0: Welcome to the PEDS NP, this is Becky Carson. And as we finish off week two in dermatology, I want you to be sure that you log on to our discussion board of the clinical conundrum and review the answers. You were rightfully concerned in so many ways, but be sure to view the final answers to cement your learning and get the full picture. Great discussion on the articles. I really love it when you guys disagree with one another. You do it so professionally and with such big words. It was the best crop of reviews I've seen in a while in this course, so nice work. But I got to tell you a little secret about academic writing. You can get just about anything published if you spin it in the right way. But as Mark Twain told us, there's lies, damn lies, and statistics. Just because something is published does not make it good. When you understand what the statistical results of the study actually mean, or how underwhelming they actually are, and pick apart the merits of an article to consider its implications for practice, you can see that much of what we study requires further research or warrants taking it with a grain of salt, not necessarily overhauling your entire practice. But as you saw this week, sometimes it might open your eyes to an at-risk group that you can target with interventions in your own practice. You get the idea, and I was really impressed with you guys. Let's talk about how the rest of the week went. You submitted your first clinical notes in pediatrics, kudos, and my guess is that by the end of it, most of you were exhausted after finishing just two notes. I'm guessing they took you at least an hour to write, and you likely felt crestfallen when they returned with blue writing all over them. I use blue most of the time for my edits because I think it looks less angry than red, and I bled blue all over them. You should print them out and make a time capsule for yourself of that clinical note, pack it away for you to open up in 10 years. You'll see what I mean then. You're obviously at the novice stage and it shows, but we're going to have you guys writing proficient, excellent notes by the end of the semester so I can just leave my blue cursor blinking. Let's talk about some of the most egregious mistakes. You need to make sure that you understand the difference between an interval history, which is what we're using in a well child check, an HPI, which is what we're using in the sick child visit, a review of systems and physical exam. Go back and listen to episode seven of the PEDS NP and review it again. Your history is anything subjective that the family tells you. It's the story of what's going on. In well checks, it's the story of health surveillance. So you need to direct your questioning towards the items that tell us how well a child is growing and developing. There are five main areas, some of which have subgroups that I always want and expect you to have in a well visit. We talked about those last week, but yet some of you were still missing them in your notes. The well visit is such a fun time to talk with the family about how a child is doing. You should ask what's been going on with the kid any recent illnesses, major happenings in the social life of the family, etc. But lots of times a family is just plugging away and they don't really have any complaints. That does not mean that your job is done. It doesn't mean that you have no further questions to ask for your history and that you just write parents have no concern and you move on. You need to find out what their impression of a healthy kid means and decide whether it meets what we know from the literature constitutes a healthy kid. Ask about diet. This is going to change from month to month in infants, so we want to know what they're taking, the volume, the duration of feeds, any symptoms of reflux, ways that they feed, a bottle, a breast, bottle with breast, do they allow other caregivers to feed them, etc., In our older toddlers and kids, we want to know what they're eating and the frequency, whether they can use utensils, do they eat with the family, how much milk and or juice do they take in a day, the types of foods they eat, and the battles that families have. You can then identify problems to counsel the family about, and you'll undoubtedly uncover questions from the parents. The remaining items are elimination, sleep, safety, and development, which is comprised of subcategories that you'll want to specifically address. A lot goes into each of these, so maybe we'll touch on another one this week. Also make sure that you're understanding what constitutes review of systems and physical exam. I was surprised at how many of you struggled with writing the head-to-toe physical exam. This is a basic skill for any provider, and it can be really embarrassing to slip up on this in clinical. So let's get this right. There are certainly nuances in every charting system that I've ever used, but there were some really common mistakes that I want to address here and get you on the path to good habits so you build your practice on the right foundation. The objective section should start with your vital signs, because vital signs are vital. Then I want to see growth with percentiles, and then the physical exam should start with a general impression, then H E N T, which should keep the order of head, eyes, ears, nose, throat, and the assessment findings should go in that order too, neck and lymph, Sometimes you'll see lymph in a different section later or all on its own, but since we most often are assessing lymph nodes that are above the clavicles, it tends to be lumped in with neck, chest, respiratory before cardiovascular, GI, GU, musculoskeletal, neuro, skin, and psych. You might see skin or neuro swapped at the end of the exam, but that's because they're systems that span head to toe. And just FYI, this is the same head-to-toe order that your physical exam should be when you present a patient to your preceptor. Before we leave the topic of diet and children, I want to circle back on a discussion that we had back with Dr. Orkin a couple weeks ago and talk about overfed babies. This is America, where we had to create our own growth charts in order to fit our babies on the scale. I'm talking about the ones from the CDC, not the World Health Organization you'll come across 10 times more overfeeding problems than you will failure to thrive. And don't get me wrong. I really want you to be able to pick up on failure to thrive and sick kids and know how to manage the diagnosis and refer. But we also need to be able to recognize other common problems too, because common things are common. Some of you may have noticed in my bleeding blue on your papers that I wanted more information from your infant well-child clinical notes. Growth is like your seventh vital sign. It can tell you so much. And the birth weight in a baby is an essential component to understanding the full picture of their growth. Babies should double their birth weight by six months. So when I see a two-month-old who's surpassed that doubled weight and then some and has reflux, I know that they're feeding too much. It's not always a problem because breastfed babies can be really chunky until they develop more of their gross motor skills, but it can help us guide parents with advice on how to alleviate some of their discomfort. Generally, babies should take about one to one and a half ounces per month old they are. So a four month is going to take around four to six ounces every three to four hours. This is a general approximation, not a rule to live by, and there are certainly going to be times when it is fine for them to take more and not concerning if they take less. But when I hear a PCP recommending that a four-month-old be given more formula when they cry because they must be hungry, then they end up taking eight ounces every four hours, I just shake my head. Babies cry for more reasons than being hungry. So parents should be watching for hunger cues, like smacking their lips, rooting, sucking on their hands, or even just fidgeting and grunting. A crying baby is a hangry baby. And parents should be making sure to feed the baby with a paced infant feeding rather than bottle propping or simply an upright deluge of the fluid flowing from an inverted bottle. For babies who are overfed with symptoms of reflux, you can suggest smaller, more frequent feeds to keep them satisfied, and then make sure that they are sitting upright for 30 minutes afterwards. Doesn't every baby have reflux, you're asking? Well, yes, but overfed babies will often have larger volumes of it because they're obviously overfed, and they may have another classic sign, congestion. I want you to think about it. What is reflux? it's formula or breast milk, plus stomach acid. And what happens when those stomach contents end up in the nasopharynx from the baby spitting up? The mucosa gets irritated by the acidity of that stomach content and produces mucus to protect itself. So the baby with constant congestion, who sounds snorty, needs an assessment of his growth, and you can suspect that feeding issues are to blame. This is not a hard and fast rule, but you can use your history, your objective findings, and your assessment skills to make that determination and give the family advice. This is another example of how I want you to be using your understanding of pediatric physiology and pathophysiology to intimately understand what's going on with your patient at every moment. This critical thinking will keep you a safe provider and help you build on your knowledge base. There are so many other topics that I want to cover with you, but it's a long semester, so I think we're going to leave it here and see where next week takes us. Remember that feedback is a gift, and on those late nights of note writing and literature reviews of evidence-based practice, you're not just doing it for graduate school, you're doing it for the kids. Take care.